night, good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's Friday, October 3rd, 2014. We're coming to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio at the controls is Jessica Lawson. And good afternoon, everyone. They just joining us from Studio C back in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Always fun to be here, Joe. Good day, Cliff. Today's segments include, we're going to go for an hour with an interview with Rebecca Morley and Kevin Kennedy. We're talking about the somewhat new, I guess fairly new, National Healthy Housing Standard. I'll have to check with them on the date. I don't see it on the cover here. But this National Healthy Housing Standard is um, a, a newer document that we want to talk about, get into a little detail with both Rebecca and Kevin. We're going to have them for the hour. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. We'd like to welcome as our newest marquee sponsors... IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscription information is available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, I think we ought to get right to the IAQ Radio trivia question. Oh, before we do, last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at, iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. competing fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. You can either email it to cslotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. Andy Krosofsky, Comcast Metal Products, and Mars PA for correctly answering last week's trivia question. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, October 3rd, 2014, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, Standards and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. Now for this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. On the periodic table, what are the symbols for lead and mercury? Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Cliff. Much appreciated. Let's play. Let's play some music real quick for our guests, and then I'll do the intros of their bios. There's a black man with black hair Little blind man He's got interstate running through his front yard You know he thinks he's got a sugar And there's a woman in the kitchen Bring up the evening slide and he looks at her and says, Hey, darling, I can remember when you could stop a cloud. Oh, but ain't that America? You and me, ain't that America? Something to see, baby, ain't that America? Home on the free. All right. What's that called? Pink House, I believe it was on Cliff's email. That's interesting. Oh. 
Oh, okay. Well, we'll get it. In the environment, okay. Uh, Kevin Kennedy is an environmental hygienist. He's the managing director of the Center for Environmental Health at Children's Mercy Hospitals and Clinics in Kansas City, Missouri. The center provides patient-based services, training, education, and performs research in indoor environmental health. Mr. Kennedy has been involved in housing and school environment health assessments for 10 years and environmental science and industrial hygiene chemistry for 20 years. He's also one of the instructors for Children Mercy's Hospital's Healthy Home Training Center, serving as the state of Missouri for the National Center for Health Healthy Housing. Additionally, he's currently the co-director of the work group practice parameter on home assessment for the Joint Task Force of the AAAAI, the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology, and also the ACAAI, the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. He's also a member of numerous other committees. He's been a guest on the show here. We love having Kenny, uh, Kevin join us. Also, Rebecca Morley is with us. She's the executive director of the National Center for Healthy Housing a national nonprofit organization dedicated to creating healthy and safe housing for children. She led the development of the National Healthy Homes Training Center, spearheaded the NCHH's recovery work in the Gulf Coast region following Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, and more recently launched the National Safe and Healthy Housing Coalition. She has authored and edited numerous publications, including the book Healthy and Safe Homes, Research, Practice, and Policy, Prior to joining NCHH, she worked in the federal government and in the United States Senate, where she was responsible for major children's environmental health laws and regulations. Let's see if we've got them on the line. Hello, Rebecca and Kevin. Do we have you? You do. Hi. All right. Rebecca? Howdy. All right. Awesome. We got everybody in. We got the music in. We got the bios done. Let's get into this document here. I've got a copy in front of me. The National healthy housing standard. I think the first question may be just a toss-up question here. Well, now let's let's go to Rebecca for this one. I'm, I'm curious, what is the, what was your intended audience for this document? The audience for the document is uh, code enforcement um, or probably municipal governments, city governments primarily, because we see housing codes as being very local. And the intention of this document was to uh, enable cities to update modernize and improve their local property maintenance codes to um, achieve better health uh, for the residents in those communities. I think probably a secondary audience, though, is private property owners, uh, rental property owners, because it can serve as a standard of care for any property, whether, um, uh, you know, whether you're regulated or not. Now, I assume you saw some kind of gap out there in the, in the current existing uh, property maintenance codes, etc. And, and I think you just kind of answered another question I had. It kind of, this is intended to supplement the property maintenance codes. What yep. So for the, the better part of 10 years, we've been showing up at the International Code Council hearings and advocating for the inclusion of common sense things like carbon monoxide alarms, um, a, a smarter, better treatment of lead-based paint, um, smarter, better treatment of pests, for instance, rather than spray extermination. And so every year we go to the council and we make our case, and every year we come home having had our butts whooped um, that we we just can't seem to get through to uh, the thousands of code officials that show up these hearings to vote on these provisions. And so we finally said, you know, let's put together what we think is the best evidence-based standard, and um, and we will continue to work through the codes process and make our case, but we're also going to begin advocating for the adoption of this National Healthy Housing Standard um, as either a standalone code or an overlay to the existing International Property Maintenance Code. And it's for exactly the reason that you said, which is we found considerable gaps. I mean, the lack of carbon monoxide alarms as a requirement in, in most local codes is an example. And let me, and, and just to clarify for folks, this is for existing housing, um, not not necessarily for for new homes. That's right. The International Property Maintenance Code is kind of one of the lesser-known codes and lesser adopted. I think about 800 or so municipalities have adopted it um, as compared to the building codes, which apply to units that are being constructed or substantially rehabbed. And um, there's the International Residential Code, the International Existing Building Code. Those seem to have a much larger uptake around the country. And there's actually a hundred, more than 100 million, I think 155 million existing homes. So we felt that that was 
really the gap, um, and the the maintenance of those units was a big gap in terms of regulation. I, I want to hey, Rebecca, here. I've got a question for you. Among the contributors to and stakeholders of this standard, who represented property owners? Oh, great question. So we had um, a terrific uh, technical committee and policy committee that oversaw this. So just as an example, Henry Cisneros, who runs City View out of uh, Texas, um, was on the policy committee. Uh, Nick Ritzinas, who comes from um, the Joint Center on Housing Studies, represents affordable housing. Um, we had Greensboro Housing Coalition that represented housing. Um, and, uh, you know, we certainly have sat down with the, the alphabet soup of uh, affordable housing associations like the National Association of Affordable Housing Managers Associations, National Multi-Housing Council. Um, we've talked to, of course, NAHB and, um, and the National Housing Institute. So um, we, we've had uh, discussions with all of the folks that represent housing broadly, affordable housing, and then properties more narrowly, property management more narrowly. Okay, thank you. I've got several follow-ups, but let me first get Kevin in, and and one of them is to kind of expand on what uh, Rebecca started to say about the International Property Maintenance Code, Kevin. I know you and I talk about this a lot, and we, we teach some, some courses together where that's a, a big focus. Can you tell listeners from your perspective um, the importance of that code? Well, uh, where that code is available, uh, it, it's uh, something that we can point to uh, when we get into homes, uh, and if that code has been implemented, and we're fortunate here in Kansas City to have a couple of communities that have implemented uh, the International Property Means Code in its entirety. So if we're working with a family uh, that lives in uh, a multifamily home or, or rental home, and uh, we see particular issues that uh, clearly are impacting their health, but we know uh, because of a little bit of familiarity with the code that this is a, a clear violation, then it, it, it gives us an opportunity to uh, advocate with some ammunition back behind us uh, for changing the conditions that we are seeing and uh, having that uh, some kind of uh, enforceable code makes a tremendous difference. And now having uh, a, a standard like this will add so much, if, if we can get people to adopt it, uh, would add so much more um, ammunition to that effort. I can, I can tell you, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, my staff has been uh, going into a couple of homes, multifamily homes locally, kids with uh, severe asthma and just deplorable conditions, and yet um, one of them is a, uh, a HUD-funded um, uh, housing uh, Location. So, um, it's having that ammunition to come in and and go after uh, what uh, people are finding themselves living in because the landlords are changing conditions is is really uh, critically important. And I'm going to try and put a link up to that. I got just checking it out now. The 2015. Oh, somebody got it for us already. Way to go, John. Thank you. You read my mind. Um, we're putting it up on the chat board here. Kevin, you mentioned early on in that. Um, succinct description of how it helps you that it's not widely adopted. And I wonder if both of you, I don't know that you necessarily said it's not widely adopted. That's kind of what I got out of it. I wonder if either one of you could comment on that. Well, Rebecca alluded to it. They, uh, you said that I think the latest that you said was 800 communities have adopted the National Property Maintenance Code. I think only two states have adopted it in their entirety. Oh, uh, okay. isn't, that, isn't that right, that Rebecca? Yeah, I yeah. think Virginia and uh, I want to say Texas might be another one. Um, New York State uh, might be the third. So another state, but that's all those other states that have not adopted it. So, and where I should clarify that some, a lot of municipalities may not have adopted the code in its entirety, but they may have used the code as a, a guide for modifying their own code. And we've certainly seen that even in Kansas City, Missouri, which hasn't adopted the International Property Means Code, but they've adopted or have their own code that actually um, uh, covers a lot of those things. Where we really see uh, missing uh, codes and information is, is in a lot of the rural communities and smaller cities, and, and uh, there's just nothing. So people have uh, the ability to, to do things to 
properties or not do things to properties because there's no enforceable mechanism and therefore people are exposed or or injury or healthy unhealthy conditions exist I'm wondering if either of you are familiar with situations where even though the international property maintenance code isn't hasn't been adopted by a local area or a state but where it was used maybe even in a court case to try and get remedy for people um, through maybe like a, a non-regulatory type of situation, but more like a tort liability issue. Boy, sorry, Joe, I don't have any examples of that. I, I think, you know, but you have touched on something which is important, which is the enforcement of the code. So it's important to have the, the best code on the books, but these things don't enforce themselves. So you also have to have uh, the political will locally to enforce it, and ideally not in a complaint-based fashion that puts the onus on the tenant, but rather in a systematic fashion um, so that every few years all of the city's stock or a portion of the stock is getting inspected systematically. The places that have done that, for instance, Greensboro, um, have seen significant improvements in, in blighted uh, housing conditions. So in Greensboro, over the course of about eight years, um, their substandard housing conditions plummeted um, by 77%. Kevin, did you want to add anything? I, I agree. I, I don't know of any specific, I can't point to a specific case, but actually more than likely there are many cases, especially uh, as we work with uh, local homeowners and the issues they're dealing with and uh, with our local uh, legal aid, obviously they're going to reference that code when they talk about the conditions that a family might be living in and that family might for some reason be withholding their rent, which uh, they can be allowed to do as long as they can show they have the ability to pay. But because of the conditions they're living in, and it's a clear violation of the code, that having that code on the books uh, is critical to them uh, being able to both uh, get changes in force but also to avoid retaliation from the landlord because of the pressure they're being put on to bring uh, housing up to some reasonable standard or code. Okay, now, Rebecca, you, you mentioned uh, getting the onus off of the tenant and you know, kind of shifting it over to you know, the landlord or, or property owner. What responsibility do you think that the tenants should have in, in terms of the code? Well, we've tried to lay that out a little bit in the front matter of our standard, that there are obligations of the tenant as well. Um, it, you know, they should be generally responsible for the, the upkeep and the interior, um, but they can't be responsible for the physical conditions of the unit because they don't have the legal authority to alter the unit. So um, I think it's fairly clear. For, I'll give you a very specific example of pest infestation because this is one that gets um, uh, that comes up pretty frequently, and it, it, pests are a big trigger for asthma. So um, the uh, damp conditions, let's just say you have a leaking toilet, you have a leaking faucet, you have a shower that's not well sealed, those are all landlord-related conditions that the tenant really cannot and, and does not have responsibility to take care of. Um, using garbage cans that have a cover um, is an example of something that the tenant can control in terms of behavior, keeping food um, cleaned up and put away. That's tenant behavior. So it's a shared responsibility, but the physical um, elements of the structure and um, for that matter, if it's a building-wide situation, um, the, a tenant in an individual unit is not going to have much control over a building-wide cockroach problem, as an example, that that's going to require a building-wide solution that's, um, that requires integrated pest management or requires the property owner to take action. Yeah, but I, I think that, you know, with cockroach infestation, you know, certainly cockroaches need uh, some sort of source of moisture, however... You know, the way that the cockroaches may initially get into the building, you know, may be tenant-related, and, uh, you know, a lot of this gets the, you know, cleanliness, you know, in kitchens and cleanliness, uh, you know, in bathrooms, you know, food storage areas, uh, et cetera. Yeah, they need food and water, and they need shelter, and um, so it is. There's a shared element of the responsibility for pests. When we teach about integrated pest management, and Kevin's one of our trainers, uh, we involve both residents and we involve property maintenance staff because um, it's important for both parties to know what their obligations and responsibilities are. Um, so we're we're sensitive to the fact that the, the residents do have a, a role in this, but we're also especially sensitive to the idea of blaming the residents for conditions that really are being caused by deteriorated housing conditions 
on most leases, uh, if they're good leases, and a tenant should be looking to make sure it includes this language, uh, include responsibility of the tenant and include resp- uh, a description of just maintaining the property, keeping it clean, uh, and, and they have that responsibility. And when we go into homes, we certainly talk to and educate families about what their role is and that they do play a role and that the reason for this uh, infestation that they're trying to manage um, is related to uh, access to food, water, and shelter, and that anything they can do to uh, prevent the access to food and water is tremendously helpful. But then we pull the landlord into that and say, obviously, we understand you're trying to work with this tenant and uh, deal with this best problem, but here are the issues that we have seen that uh, you can take care of. And, and as Rebecca said, you you got to have everybody communicating and involved and, and understanding what their contribution and the good pest management is. And half of what we might do related to that is just advocate for uh, understanding their roles. And prompt reporting is another issue. Uh, I just came from actually meeting with a housing authority here in the Maryland area, and uh, one of the concerns that they have is they don't always get prompt reports from tenants about issues, whether, whether it be water or other you know, housing-related hazards. So um, that's something we try to impress upon tenants that, uh, that they, they should and they can and they um, must report problems that they're having so that they can be fixed quickly. There's concern. You know, I think a lot of tenants are worried if they complain, they may um, end up putting themselves out of a home. Um, it's not an unfounded concern since we definitely have cases of, you know, lots of cases of eviction. It's partially why our legal aid society uh, works on housing cases. So, um these are just sensitive issues, particularly for vulnerable populations, where they're, um, you know, feeling very fortunate to have a roof over their head at all. You know, uh, in a city like New York City, you know, both my children live there, and they live in some older housing stock, you know, buildings that you know were built in the '60s, and you know they're paying uh, significant rent, and uh, you know, I think in many situations, uh, you know, I guess it's difficult. Uh, you know, it's you know, highly heavily populated. Um, you know, older housing stock. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it seems that these issues are going to occur in all sites. You know, regardless of what it costs, you know, to live there, uh, the problems are going to be there. Yeah, there, you know, I don't know if you saw the Dateline episode about asthma in the New York City Housing Authority properties, but they, I thought it was really interesting. They talked about this one family whose home, I mean, they, the cameras walked around and had footage of it. It was impeccable. It was, it was absolutely clean, um, but the roaches were a real problem, and, and their child had asthma and had been to the ER several times. Um, and it was just a situation where the building had gotten out of control. So even units that had been impeccably kept were being impacted. Um, it is a problem. I think um, many of the big housing authorities have had to tackle this. I think we're showing uh, that this integrated pest management approach where you're dealing with the food, water sources, um, low, toxic, uh, low toxicity approaches to baiting um, work. And they work over a longer period of time than these quarterly spraying, which seems to just kill the population dead for a couple months and then they come back. What about roads? You know, some cities, I think Baltimore, uh, I think in particular, has one of the highest rodent populations, if not the highest in the country. Uh, Do you have a lot of issues in Baltimore? Um, yes, um, I, we've done some work in the community and that was one of their top concerns was the rodent population. These rodents are the size of small dogs. They, it's frightening. Um, I think this becomes an issue that really then involves the environmental health department. Um, there used to be urban rodent programs around the country that were funded by the Centers for Disease Control. They're, they're no longer really in existence, and it's too bad because it's, it is an issue in many urban areas. But this has to do oftentimes with um, conditions outside the homes, uh, you know, upkeep of garbage. Sometimes there might be... Um, uh, you know, in this particular community that I'm talking about, there were uh, there was uh, lots of sites, landfill sites, where people had deposited garbage, and, and other places that were unofficial landfills where people were just dumping things, and they were becoming a source of problem. Um, but that is an issue, I think, from from a from an allergy standpoint. And Kevin will will. Uh, be able to confirm this. We care a lot about roaches. We care a lot about mice. We care a lot about mold. We care about tobacco smoke. Those are the things in the indoor environment that seem to be really driving our asthma rates up. Um, 
but rats are a problem from infectious disease and, and bites are a problem. And you certainly hear some gruesome stories about rats crawling in windows and biting children. And it, it's, uh, you know, the mental health implications of that, I, I'm sure, are um, pretty significant as well. Well, and the mental health significance of any of these pest infestations is pretty significant. There's clearly a link between depression and, and living in substandard housing or living in uh, those kind of pest-infested conditions. And actually, it is true. You can clarify on the rodents that uh, uh, two of the important studies on uh, mouse exposure and asthma exposure to the allergens and showing a significant relationship came from Boston and Baltimore, where uh, those urban areas had um, high concentrations of mice, uh, not just rats. Uh, that's not as much a factor here in Kansas City. Yes, we have a, a mouse problem, but it, it, it's not, or, or we have mice, but it's not to the level in the urban core that uh, they have seen in, in those two eastern cities as an example. So it, it is a big problem. Now, we, we, we hear the, the term, and I'd like to get this kind of... Uh, clarified for, for the listeners, and then maybe you can give me some examples of, of the trends in this with respect to substandard conditions for housing. I mean, how do we determine what is substandard, how many are there, and what's the trend been like over the past few decades? Are we getting better, is it going backwards, or is it about the same? Uh, I guess I'll, I'll hop in real quick. We, every year, um well, actually, every few years, release the state of healthy housing, which is based on American housing survey data. Um, the metro uh, data, the national data come out every three years, and the metro data come out in a less uh, frequent way, usually every f uh, five or six years, um, for the 48 largest metropolitan areas in the country. According to those data, and they define um, uh, substandard housing as housing having moderate or severe conditions, and so this might be inadequate plumbing, inadequate electrical, roofing problems, um, signs of mice. Um, so there's kind of a long list of actually about 20 indicators that are factors in those um, designations of moderate or severe conditions. About two and a half million units have very severe conditions, probably what we would call uninhabitable. Um, and then another uh, about almost four million have uh, moderate conditions. So taken together, about 6.3 million units in the country are considered substandard by the American Housing Survey definition. Um, sadly, this, um, this, we just haven't moved this at all over the course of two decades. If you look at the, the line of housing and substandard condition, it's, it's remained right around, hovering around 6.3. So um, it could be, you know, it's hard to tell is it we're adding new homes, um, which will help, but at the same time, our old homes are falling into disrepair, and certainly we think the foreclosure crisis didn't help matters at all, um, with lots of homes going into default and sitting vacant. Um, so it's discouraging to look at that, and um, just by way of background, we're just launching a new campaign called A Thousand Communities, and the goal of it is to reduce substandard housing in 1,000 communities um, by 50% by 2025. So uh, we've got basically a 10-year goal of um, really tackling this issue of substandard housing in a very concerted fashion. Well, and let's uh, clarify, I can add to that. Uh, so what Rebecca described were from the American Housing Survey, a telephone survey asking people various uh, questions about their housing and conditions. Uh, moderate physical condition, as an example, is uh, the lack of a kitchen sink. That's a, mod a moderate condition. Uh, using our community as an example, and I think this provides some perspective, in Kansas City alone, when you think about this 6.3 million homes you, that out of 140-some uh, million across the U.S., 150 million, uh, it seems like, well, that's, that maybe that's not significant across the entire U.S., but if just using Kansas City, that's 32,000 homes. 32,000 in the Kansas City region alone that have moderate and severe physical problems. The other part of that is that those uh, that survey does not include environmental problems. This isn't doesn't include known lead hazard. Doesn't include uh, insect infestation. Doesn't include asbestos. Doesn't include radon. Doesn't include um, um, a whole host of. Uh, things related to moisture. It covers leaks, but it doesn't cover condensation and the things associated with that. Think of the millions of homes that would fall under all of those other categories. So 
the amount of substandard conditions out there is is frankly astounding. And, and for us to have, you know, thirty plus thousand here just in our region alone, imagine the other communities around yeah. around the country. It's it's really a significant, huge problem. That's a great point about the fact that the way that we basically define substandard housing is usually exclusive of environmental health conditions. And I think that actually ties back into why we did the National Healthy Housing Standard. Probably the way that this standard differs most from local codes that are already on the books where they have them is the environmental health uh, components, the so radon, lead, pesticides. Uh, even noise and light are things that we cover in the standard, and you just don't find those in local codes. And I think it's um, it, it's because um, typically building officials and code officials see their um, responsibility as life safety and um, and and probably structural integrity of the units that they inspect. But environmental health is an issue that they feel is not their mission um, and is the responsibility of the local environmental health department or public health department. So over the last uh, century, the, the responsibility for dealing with the sanitary conditions of our homes has really become quite split between the building official folks and our public health folks. Um, and there ends up being a fair amount of finger pointing back in, at each other. You know, well, this is something you guys should do. You should do lead. Well, no, we don't have the authority to do that or we don't have the people to do that. Uh, and so families and residents get stuck in between that, um, those mission battles. Oh, it's, it's a big disconnect. Well, and a perfect example is in the International Property Maintenance Code even, uh, combustion air is just a kind of a broad term. It, it doesn't really get into the specifics of carbon monoxide or prevention uh, from carbon monoxide uh, exposure. There might be a little bit about the exhaust ventilation, but that's the beauty of this standard is that it, it does uh, give you very specific uh, statements that are specific to uh, the potential health impact of a particular component of, of a house. So, uh, you know, one of the things I thought was very interesting is in the preface of the document under you have a couple of paragraphs that are titled Using the Document. You know, it says, and I quote, the standard constitutes minimum performance standards for a safe and healthy home. Uh, if you're considering this minimum, uh, how much better really could you get than, than what you have here? We, um, it's a great question, and, and we really had a tough, because we had a lot of people on our committee, and, and we certainly balance affordable housing with with public health. That's kind of where we sit in this movement is trying to make sure that whatever we put out is practical, feasible, affordable. So we, we spent a lot of time doing this um, delicate balance uh, between whether it could be practically done and whether it was the best public health approach. Where we ended up was having core requirements that we definitely would, we call these a floor. This is now what we think is minimum standards for healthful housing. Um, but then we have some stretch provisions where we thought this is going to be difficult for people to achieve, either at property maintenance or because of its cost. Um, uh, so we included stretch provisions too, and that way, if the jurisdiction is interested in going above and beyond, they have that they have the language to allow them to do that. We thought that's especially important for communities that might have a concern about something, some specific issue, you know, whether it be um, window guards or whether it be. Um, uh, radon, you know, giving them some ability to go above and beyond, we thought was important. Well, what I also liked about that was the stretch provisions are also evidence-based. So if you have communities that want to go beyond uh, this minimum guidance and, and want to add the stretch provisions, they've got rationale and references to support it if they need to defend it to their local city officials, because fundamentally all of this ties back to the health of the local community, so it's, it's pretty easily defensible. You know, and I, before we break for halftime, I wanted to, I'm, I'm so glad that conversation occurred, because that is a very important part of the document that we hadn't talked about yet, and I, I want to give listeners a concrete example of a stretch provision. Uh, this comes from the uh, heating system section. Any new combustion heating equipment installed in occupied or conditioned spaces shall be power vented or sealed direct vented combustion equipment. And the, the second one there is the heating system shall be controlled by a programmable thermostat to avoid temperature extremes. So uh, they don't seem to be 
too big of a stretch. I mean, that's, you know, although I can see in a big building, you've got, you know, a thousand uh, units, you may not be able to get that individual control that you would like. But uh, in general, they look like pretty reasonable stretches, at least the ones I've seen so far. All right. Let's break for halftime. We are going to stop and thank our sponsors. Please stick with us for about 90 seconds. We're going to be back with Kevin Kennedy and Rebecca Morley from the uh, National Center for Healthy Housing and the uh, Kansas City Children's uh, Mercy Hospital. We'll be right back in 90 seconds. Thanks to our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine. Your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. We'd like to welcome as our newest marquee sponsors, IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscription information is available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview with Rebecca Morley and Kevin Kennedy. We're talking about the National Healthy Housing Standard, and I wanted to lead off this second half with a quick shout-out to the listeners here. If you, if you don't read anything else, Read the forward. Um, the forward to the document is really uh, does a nice job of explaining some of the things we've talked about earlier. But also, I think the thing that caught my attention the most was a statement about the consequences of not dealing with substandard housing. They are dire in both human well-being and cost, according to the document. About 20 to 30 percent of asthma cases are linked to home environmental conditions. 21,000 lung cancer deaths result from radon in homes. 24 million homes have lead-based paint hazards that puts children at the risk of irreversible disease of childhood lead poisoning. And home injuries are the leading causes of death for young children and puts 6 million adults over 65 in hospitals and nursing homes due to preventable falls. And what I wanted to do, Kevin, is, is let that lead into a little discussion about the fact that um, these documents were all, I mean, the document, you were part of the group that helped determine if these statements were supported by the evidence. And I think that was a very important thing to do with this document is to, you know, we, we've got so much new evidence and, and we've got a lot of good information available. You brought in some great people to assist with that. And maybe we should start with Rebecca or either one of you. Who else assisted with ensuring the evidence was there? and um, had roles that should be acknowledged. Well, let me just uh, have Rebecca uh, respond, but let me say my role wasn't so much ensuring the evidence was there. Uh, it was ensuring that the connections between the statements as written and the evidence uh, made sense and were appropriate. And I was just one of many clear experts, if you look at the people that were involved in this, there's people on here way smarter than I am. And I'll let Rebecca uh, describe 
uh, really the committee that put the actual um, standard together. Um, thanks. Well, Kevin, obviously, he's very modest, but he was one of the key uh, people that we involved on the technical side. Um, in, internally, our staff did a lot of the literature review, and this was interesting. I mean, we went really deep into the studies that looked at things like crowding, for example. And there was, um, we had a you know, few debates on a few things. Smoke-free housing was, a, was an issue that came up um, as a, a, a an issue that, you know, what kind of evidence do we have and what are the unintended consequences of potentially regulating um, in a standard smoke-free housing. Uh, crowding came up because, you know, for a long time people have talked about, um, and there are on the books, many, uh, in some ways, antiquated regulations about how many people you can have in a home, and those have some perverse consequences. Um, uh, so we went, we took a look at the literature around crowding, and, and it was really revealing. Um, and, and ultimately, we did not come up with a um, number of people per room, but we came up with a square footage. So we agreed that we don't want people renting a, a phone booth, but we also don't want to tell people how many, uh, you know, whether, whether or not it's okay to have two women in a, in a house. Um, or whether or not um, you need a separate room for uh, male and female. You would be surprised at what some of these local codes say. Uh, I think I actually technically lived in a brothel when I was in college is how it was defined by our local code uh, because of the number of women I was living with. Um, so in any case, um, we had a really um, terrific group of experts. We had the policy experts that I mentioned earlier that really helped us think about some of these balance issues that I talked about, and that's where um, having uh, public health people and housing people on, on the group were helpful. We had someone from the World Health Organization. I mentioned former Secretary uh, Henry Cisnero, Steve Thomas, um, who's the spokesperson for Habitat for Humanity, but of course you probably know from this old house. Um, and then uh, we also had on the technical group people that um, brought building science, like Terry Brennan and Richard Shaughnessy. Um, Richard is at the University of Tulsa, and uh, Terry Brennan is a, a private consultant. Um, we had people from the U.K., David Ormandy specifically, who's been the principal person that was responsible for developing their health and housing rating system in the U.K., uh, pediatrician like Megan Sandell, um, expertise in moisture, uh, Bill Rose from UIC or University of Illinois Urbana, Champaign, sorry. Um, and then we also had state and local agency folks because they're the ones that ultimately are responsible for implementation. So we wanted to get their uh, really grounded feedback on what this might look like on the ground. Well, and then uh, people like Jim Krieger, who are a little of both, uh, very strong in public health, but also very strong in the research and uh, doing some proactive development of healthful housing. So, Yep, and um, there's a, a full long list that I won't read, but I can just say that everyone made terrific contributions from various vantage points, technical and otherwise. You know, I earlier on in, in the interview, Rebecca, you mentioned uh, that you I couldn't remember exactly that you had somehow involved the National Association of Home Builders in in the process along the way here. I I, I have found in the past that when new codes are being uh, recommended, they are not necessarily always in favor of those new codes because you know it adds burden to the builders, it, it adds cost to the construction, etc. At least that's the that's the thought of most people going in. I'm wondering how the um, relationship worked out with you on this particular document. Well, I think, I mean, we briefed, um, and, and I shouldn't overstate their involvement. You don't see them showing up on our advisory committee, um, but we certainly kept them informed and briefed on the effort and invited them to um, comment on the public comment draft and so forth. Um, I think it remains to be seen how supportive they'll be, and, and we'll find out when we show up at the 2015 ICC hearings. Um, our experience hasn't really been terrific. And uh, and let me say, I do, uh, I can empathize a bit with their, maybe not the home builders so much, but with local code officials who are concerned about additional changes. Um, their code books look a little bit like the Affordable Care Act, which is a thousand pages long. And so I know that added complications and added standards and all of that are not particularly um, embraced uh, wholeheartedly. So we get that, and we're not really trying to add complexity so much as add um, a level of science to, to what is being practiced out there. If they've got an old, for instance, if they have an old uh, standard about lead-based paint that just says control peeling paint, we would love for them to replace that with a modern one that says how to do that safely in compliance with EPA's regulations. Um, if they have an old uh, pest extermination 
provision that just says spray, spray, um, we would love for them to replace that with an updated one that says get rid of, you know, the food, water, and, and shelter for pests. So a lot of what we're doing is really updating, modernizing, and ensuring that there's a scientific basis for what's on the books. Well, on the other side of that is uh, as part of the review process, uh, uh, Rebecca alluded to it, as we all reviewed the document, part of what we're looking at is is what the standard recommends. Is that reasonable? And uh, initially, with some of these statements, we're all health advocates, so we want it to be as rigorous as possible. But there were others within the technical review committee who said, hey, that's great that you think it should be this level, but that's a, a burden. You're making this overly burdensome, and the vast majority of people are just going to ignore that. So if there are small steps. You have to write some of these individual standards and statements as um, as a stepping stone to a more rigorous standard than what they have, but at least one that steers them towards making it a healthier standard and a healthier code if, uh, if they have one. Okay, let me let me break down real quick for folks. I, I have the seven main chapters here, and I, I'd kind of like to at this point go into a little more detail on the different chapters. We've got the um, the one that we talked about earlier, which was the question Cliff had about the duties of owners and occupants. That's actually Chapter 1. The second one is uh, structures, facilities, plumbing, and space requirements. Then we've got safety and personnel issues, um, personal, I'm sorry, personal security, safety and personal security. Then we've got lighting and electrical systems, Thermal comfort, ventilation, and energy efficiency is Chapter 5. 6 is moisture control, solid waste, and pest management. And 7 is chemical and radiological agents. And I'm wondering, out of these seven categories, um, were there any categories that were a little more difficult than others with respect to finding the the science and, and the research to justify some of the recommendations you're making in here? Uh, I guess there were two categories that might fit that. One is some of the basic um, safety uh, and the the safe and sanitary uh, provisions because uh, those actually originated from almost a century ago when we had the first sanitary housing movement um, that when we got rid of old tenement housing and replaced it with better quality housing with indoor plumbing. And the reason being that it's what I described earlier, which is there's just not a lot of randomized control trials to show that that uh, results in improved health, even though we know um, categorically that having indoor plumbing and that having fresh air and that having um, uh, electrical um, supply is is helpful. So, so that's one category, and we didn't spend a lot of time worrying about that because it's already in current regulation, it's already in current um, guidance, and so forth. So, uh, in some ways, we have best practice and and uh, regulatory uh, regimes for which we can point to. The other category would be probably environmental health, and it wasn't because the literature wasn't there. Um, in fact, the, the literature is very robust for many of these things, like lead, for instance. Um, but it was more a question of practicality and how how far can we go um, in the in the context of property maintenance. If people are not doing a substantial rehab or even major repairs, how much can we ask them to do? Does it make sense, for instance, to do radon mitigation? Um, what can we accomplish on noise? We know that um, acoustics and noise are becoming an important uh, public health issue um, in terms of noise annoyance and mental health and stress. So um, how can we accomplish that during property maintenance? Can we? Um, so I would say those were the, the environmental health components were the ones that probably challenged us the most. Well, and with that, that means what you might find is in the stretch provisions, uh, there's additional guidance that the uh, evidence says, because it's more robust, the evidence says, hey, if we could include these things as part of your standard or local code, that you should see uh, population health benefit for your community. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm trying to find a, a stretch. Here's an example of a, a stretch provision on, on solid waste. Uh, exterior trash and recycling containers shall be placed at least 30 feet, 9 meters from buildings unless such space is not available. Uh, that one, I'm, I'm wondering, it, it was probably difficult to find any good research on that particular topic. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think... Um I, I actually remember talking about that because we were trying to figure out, well, what's the right proximity? And so finding research on the right proximity is um, really difficult. Um, and everything's situated in a different way. You know, it's hard to know whether that's the, the correct 
uh, distance for every home. So for some of the provisions where it was tricky to figure out whether the implementation would work, um, they, they uh, were relegated to the stretch provisions. And it really meant that locals should look at these and figure out how it makes sense in the, in the context of their local situation. Let me go to some uh, – go ahead, Kevin. You have something to add? Or Cliff, was that you? No, it was it was me, actually. Um, go ahead. Uh, they can finish, and I, I, I just have something I'd like to ask. Okay. Kevin, did you want to add to that, or can I go on to this next one? No, I think go on to the next one. I think uh, as, as people look at the document, what they'll find is, is where possible, of course, uh, looking for specific evidence. Uh, if specific research isn't found, there's uh, – they, lots of pointing to either uh, a particular state or federal guidance that uh, might serve as a, a beginning point or a reference. Okay, and that, uh, let me point out a couple. I know we, we spend a lot of time on the show here on, on moisture control, and I've got one here that's, um, let's see, I've got several. This one's in the, in the regular provisions. It's not a stretch. It's 6.1.6. The underlying cause of excessive dampness or moisture or moldy or earthy odor shall be investigated and corrected. Not a, I mean, that's, I don't think that's a radical statement to put into this document. That seems kind of, you know, common sense and also rather practical. Um, but let's go to one other one, 6.1.8. Unless the crawl space is sealed and insulated from the outdoors, the crawl space shall be free of high moisture conditions or be separated from the dwelling by an air seal or other method suitable to the climate and conditions. That's when we talk about a lot about in, in the indoor environmental quality arena. I'm wondering if there's any comments on that one from you, Kevin, or, or Rebecca. Uh, Kevin, I'll let you go on the crawl space. I, I think the uh, what I would say about the moisture provision is, it's amazing how many jurisdictions do not have the ability to enforce conditions that are conducive to mold, or even mold for that matter. Um, it's one of the top things that we hear from our local community-based organizations and health departments is that they, they know these problems exist. There's nothing on the books that gives them a hook for citing it. So we were trying to be um, a little bit broader in giving authority to the code officials here to, if they, they smell something, if they see if conditions that are conducive, that they can cite those. Well, so if you look at that uh, guidance standard, like you're pointing to, 61618, uh, uh, we know, and you know, Joe, we've talked about it extensively, and and the new literature here in the last three or four years suggests that any kind of chronic dampness, there's a strong association with a host of different uh, health outcomes and really significant health outcomes. And uh, what uh, these kinds of, uh, of standards, like 616, underlying cause of excessive dampness and moisture, earthy odor shall be investigated. That's because a lot of the population literature shows a strong correlation with odor and uh, moisture damage and mold, more than a lot of the quantitative measurements that people might uh, try to perform. Uh, there's, there's very good documentation for that in the literature. On the crawl spaces, uh, this is saying unless it is properly sealed and insulated, it ought to be dry because what that's suggesting is there's a potential for uh, accidental uh, infiltration from that crawl space. And if it has moisture and other uh, problematic conditions associated with it, then all of that air is going to be contributing to the indoor space unless it's been properly sealed and insulated. So this is saying uh, keep it dry. Okay, and I've got some stretch provisions I want to hit, but Cliff, I want to make sure that if uh, we have time for your question, if you want to put it in here. Yeah, actually, um, you know, in looking at the document, uh, there are a couple of sections, uh, I guess 7.7, .7, which deals with methamphetamine, and, and, it, and it says that if the dwelling was used for manufacturer of, of methamphetamine, it shall be vacated until it's certified uh, to be safe. And I'm just wondering, uh, in the document, why they didn't consider drug use uh, in the document, you know, such as smoking crack or, uh, you know, smoking cocaine, uh, you know, smoking methamphetamine. You know, if you're concerned about whether drugs have been manufactured there, it would seem to me that it would probably be more likely that drugs might have been used there and why that wasn't covered in the standard. 
That's a really good question. You know, this came up as a modern public health problem that a lot of our local health departments are uh, facing, and I think the concern was about the the amount of toxic chemicals that are used in the manufacture of meth, uh, and then the residues that can be left over and their um, their toxicity to future inhabitants. So. Um, I think it's an interesting question of whether crack cocaine and other uh, drugs that might have been used in a unit leave um, a serious enough residue that they need to be remediated. I think um, it's entirely possible. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's just simply not something that came up in the context of our discussion. Smoke-free housing certainly did, and we do have some treatment of that in here, and I can talk more about that. Um, but um, other illegal drugs, I think we were highly focused on the chemicals that were being used in the manufacture and meth of meth, and that's why we wanted to make sure that those there was some treatment of uh, uh, some discussion of how to deal with units that had been um, exposed to those kind of chemicals. Well, the problem. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it's okay. I was just going to say, and then in the case of meth, there is uh, you know specific procedures that you go through for. Um, rendering a house safe after that uh, exposure, whereas with, with crack and maybe other illegal drugs, I'm not I'm not aware of the specific protocol you follow for for cleanup. Well, and the complication with meth is oftentimes the bulk chemical products for manufacture and the waste bulk products are left behind, and those can be not just uh, toxic. Uh, or corrosive, they can be explosive. Explosive, and so right. Phenomenally dangerous conditions associated with that. Now, Cliff, if you read the document, it says uh, the guidance for 7.8, smoke in multifamily housing. The, the standard written here, 7.8.1, for example, says smoking shall be prohibited. It doesn't say smoke and tobacco. It just says smoking <laughs> shall be prohibited. So I suppose you could. But it says indoor common areas, so I'm not sure what. Um, Either way, it just says smoking, so that could apply to crack, could apply to marijuana, could apply to tobacco, although the rationale is specifically to tobacco because we have so much uh, clear public health documentation associated with tobacco exposure, but uh, I'm just... You know, Rebecca, around here a little bit. you mentioned that you could talk more about the tobacco issue. I, I Before we do, it's, we're running a little low on time, and I don't want to spend all the time on moisture, but I do want to encourage listeners to take a look at the stretch provisions under moisture, and if we get, if we have a little time left over at the end, I may ask Kevin about one of those. I don't think they're much of a stretch once again, but um, I can understand why they might be tough to implement in some cases. But anyway, I wondered if you could maybe comment a little bit more on the smoking in buildings, Rebecca, because I know that's a it's a difficult issue. You know, you, you've got people that live in their home and they feel like they should be able to smoke in their own home and et cetera. And, and, and you said you had a few other things you could comment on, and I wondered if you do that. Sure. Um, we're in a, we're in an interesting position in the smoke-free housing debate. Uh, there's a big push to outlaw smoking in public housing, for instance. And, of course, we're not against the idea of smoke-free uh, living environments, but we also think policies like smoke-free, where you have vulnerable tenants on the other end of leases, have to be implemented very carefully uh, with tenant input. Um, so, uh, you know, we care very much about whether or not this is another uh, policy that can be used to get rid of, un- quote, unquote, undesirable tenants. Um, so we have that tenant uh, right perspective and, and sensitivity. Um, there's not a right to smoke. You don't have a right to smoke, but you also, um, tenants uh, have the right to fair treatment. And um, there's a long, uh, sordid history of uh, tenant uh, rights issues, in, especially in the context of public housing. So um, that sits in the back of our decision-making around this. And then in addition to that, the question is, does smoke-free housing belong in a uh, regulatory local code? Um, And we spent a lot of time talking about how might you write a code that makes sense, again, because you're not quite sure how these buildings are situated. So, um, you know, uh, if you want to have a smoking area that's uh, set in a certain distance from a, from the units, uh, is that technically feasible in every situation? Um, and ultimately, after talking with folks that have been doing smoke-free housing policy for a long time, like Multnomah County and Seattle King County, um, so that's Oregon and the state of Washington, the feeling was that smoke-free housing is a policy that should be implemented at the property level, 
um, and not, uh, you know, regulatory, wasn't ready for regulatory requirement because there are too much potential for unintended consequences and for the implementation of it to be um, messy in the sense that we don't know the design, the layout of every development around the country to know how to write a standard that makes any sense. So in the end, um, our uh, decision was to prohibit it in common areas of multifamily buildings. And then um, at the, uh, the exterior is less than 25 feet from building entrances, outdoor, air, in takes and um, in your operable windows. So we're trying to avoid the drift. We're trying to avoid people having to walk through it. Um, but we ended up steering clear of uh, telling people that they could not smoke in their individual units and felt that that is a decision ultimately that should be left to the private property owner. So that points to the reasonable nature of the standard that there is a real effort to try to be reasonable, but at least provide some kind of guidance. You know, I'm glad I asked that question because it does help point to the to the reasonableness of the standard, but also illustrates even more clearly how difficult it is and that there are numerous factors that had to be taken into consideration before putting something out, you know, on, on paper that, that says it's a national healthy housing standard. First, I want to thank both of you for joining us, and, and it's been a great interview. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Before we go, though, I always like to make sure you both have an opportunity. Is there anything you'd like to add, anything we'd missed, any key point that you want to make sure that listeners get before we sign off? Well, I certainly would make one more point, Joe, and that is for many of your listeners and really for anybody who does home assessments uh, goes into homes and is looking for some kind of guidance for things they might look for if, if they are at a loss or they're concerned about their thoroughness, why not use this standard as an example? If you don't know how to evaluate related to smoking, for example, or how to evaluate related to ventilation or something or, or water heat, uh, I think that this standard can be a great reference that someone uses when they go into a home and try to ensure that it's as healthy as it can be. Yeah, it's almost like you could make it into a checklist, boom. And, and, Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. I would love to do that. Maybe, Joe, we should talk about that. And, Kevin, um, my only call would be for people that are interested in seeing this adopted in their own communities locally, please reach out to us because, um, again, our goal is to deal with substandard housing in a 1,000 communities, so we need a lot of local partners. So if you're in the position to advocate for the adoption of a stronger code, we want to talk to you. Great. Thank you so much, Rebecca Morley and Kevin Kennedy, for joining us today. We're talking about the National Healthy Housing Standard. And by the way, how long ago did this come out? I know it hasn't been that long. It came out in May. I guess we should add the date to our cover. Thanks for noticing that. Yeah, we launched it in May. Okay, so May of 2014. So, you know, we're we're still fairly fresh out of the box here, and uh, we enjoyed having you and, and appreciate both of you joining us. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to our guest today. Also, next week, we've got uh, Dr. Richard Corsi's coming back with one of his Ph.D. Uh, students, Brandon Bohr. We're going to uh, go over some of Brandon's research and, and get the second in our series of interviews with Dr. Corsi, and we look forward to that and hope many of you will be able to join us again next week. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to today's guests, of course, to the Z-Man, Cliff. Great job, Cliff. Always a pleasure, Joe. Check out the Z-Man's blog. We get it out usually on Wednesday, sometimes on Thursday. He'll have a blog for this show coming out middle of the week next week. Also want to thank Jessica Lawson, my engineer here. Great job. No glitches. Sounds good. All right. And, of course, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Thank you so much for being here this week. Please come back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. 